Section 2 of Northern Trails, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melissa Jean. Northern Trails, Book 2, by William J. Long. In Quest of Waptonk the Wild, Part 2. The trained geese which were often used, descendants of sundry wing-tipped or wounded birds that had been saved to breed in captivity, were very different from old Greylag. When the honk of wild geese was heard, and the long wedge wavered over the pond, these trained birds would be loosed to circle far out from the shore, and with wild clamour call down their wilder kinsfolk. Then slowly, cautiously, as if they knew well the treacherous work they were doing, they would lead the wild birds in towards the blind, to within range of the hidden gunners, when they would scatter suddenly and rush aside to get out of the way, and the decoyed and wandering geese would be left open to the murderous fire of the concealed hunters. An evil work, it seemed to me, in which I am glad to remember I took no part, beyond that of watching with intense interest and wondering at the cunning patience with which the old pot-hunter had trained his wild confederates. Watching these trained decoys one day, it was hard to realize that the birds were but yesterday the wildest and wariest of all the feathered folk. Then the startling paradox occurred to me, that the very wildest of the creatures are easier to tame by man, and the quickest to adopt his ways. The sparrows that live about our houses all their days have little fear of men, but at the first attempt to catch them they are suspicious for life, and to domesticate them would be an impossibility. So with the ruffled grouse, a very tame bird in his native wilderness that barely moves aside to let men pass, yet all attempts to domesticate him or to make him content with safe quarters and abundant fare have been, with a few rare exceptions, unaccountable failures. He lets you come near and watch him readily enough. But the moment you put him in your coop, the very spirit of wildness takes possession of him, and he dies in attempt to regain his freedom. The wild goose, on the other hand, the wariest and wildest of birds, when he comes among us in his migrations, giving wide birth to everything that has the least semblance to man or man's invention, and never letting you get within rifle shot, if his weary sentinels can detect your approach, will feed from your hand after he has been a few hours in your coop and his descendants will take a permanent and contented place in your barnyard. In the spring when the migratory fever stirs within him, he will answer the clarion call of his fellows in the sky, and spread wings to join them. But that passes speedily, and he turns back to your dooryard, and seems content even with the clipped wing which keeps him there, while his brothers and kinsfolk fade away in the cold blue distance. Cases have been known in which a wounded goose, having been kept all winter, has flown away with a passing flock into the unknown north during the spring migration, and returned the next fall to the same barnyard, bringing her brood with her. And so with the turkeys that range our fields, they are descendants of birds that by yesterday were ranging the woods as wild and unapproachable as wilderness ravens. The first great lesson I learned in the years of following the wild goose as a hunter was one of tremendous respect for his wariness and intelligence. To call a person a goose would be an exaggerated compliment, or a bit of pure flattery, if one but understood what he was saying. Wherever he feeds in the open, Waptonk has his sentinels posted on the highest points of observation, wise old birds that know their business, and it is next to impossible to approach a flock without being detected. Once it was enough to lead a cow slowly towards where the birds were feeding, on the stubble, and keep yourself hidden on the farther side of the grazing animal. But now Waptonk looks keenly under every cow, to see if she has an extra pair of legs or no and so other devices must be invented, only to be quickly fathomed by Waptonk's nimble wit, and then cast aside with the others as useless things. 
On the coast he still listens to the voice of his kind, and comes to the train decoys, and on the prairies a deep pit with wounded birds tied to stakes all about it, and honking to their fellows will sometimes bring him near enough for a quick shot. But these unfair advantages are in themselves a confession of man's failure, since by his own wit, and aided by modern firearms, he is no longer able to contend with the wit of a goose. Elsewhere, especially in the great wheat fields of the southwest, there is a humorous confession of man's impotence, and waptonks to purity in the queer goose cavalry, horsemen that go shooting and shouting about to frighten away from the growing wheat the thronging thousands of wild geese that cannot be circumvented or destroyed. And the most ridiculous thing in the whole proceeding is that the goose cavalrymen must fume and fret under the thought that the exasperating birds understand him perfectly. They feed and gabble away serenely, paying no more serious heed to him than to any other scarecrow, until just before he gallops up, or foolishly tries to creep within range behind his horse, when the sentinel gives the alarm and the whole flock takes wing and settles down comfortably to feed in another part of the same wheat field. All this is the more remarkable in view of the fact that this marvellous shrewdness with which Waptonk evades the best inventions of men, far from being a matter of instinct, is imparted to him on the spot by his wise old leaders. For untold generations he has been born and bred in the waste places of the north, where he sees no man, and where his life is singularly carefree and fearless. When he starts southward for the first time, full-grown and strong of wing, he knows absolutely nothing of the world of men. Left to himself and his own instincts, he would speedily tumble into the first cunning pitfall, as his ancestors did, when they met for the first time the white man and his devices. Then old and young alike had little fear of man, as they have now in their wild northern home, and met him with only the ordinary wild creature's watchfulness. But in a few seasons they learn better, and now the chief concern of the old birds on the southern migration is to keep the young well away from things that are dangerous. Fortunately for the young goose, his parents always lead the flock of which he is a part, and from them and from the old leaders trained in the school of long experience, he speedily learns to shift for himself and to make his own way in a world of wits. All these and many more things the boy has learned as he followed Waptonk with the hunters, but still his chief question remained unanswered. From books and baymen alike, from explorers and the shrewd old pot-hunter of the Middleborough ponds, he heard always the same story, how the honking wedge might be called down to decoys, and how the wary birds might be told or trapped or outwitted and killed. But what Waptonk was as a living creature, what thoughts were in his head, and what feelings in his heart, when he was far from men, in his own home where he could be himself, that problem nobody answered. Something to be killed rather than a living thing to be known and understood was what met the boy at every turn and hushed his questions. And always in the spring, when the wild call of the wide voyagers floated down from the blue heavens, and the boy's eyes followed eagerly the rush of the great living wedge sweeping northward to love and liberty, something new and strange, yet familiar as the spring or sunrise, stirred and awoke in the boy's heart, and made him long to follow. That is no strange experience, I think. Something stirs in the hearts of most men, and sweeps the years away, and makes them boys again, with the impulse to wander, and to do splendid things far away, when the first jubilant trumpet clangor of the wild goose comes down to them in the spring twilight. It was no surprise, therefore, but only the fulfillment of many years of quiet expectancy, when I crept out of the low spruces away up in the northern peninsula of Newfoundland, and found the end of my long quest. 
a subdued chatter of wild voices had called me softly above the steady murmur of the river as i stole through the woods to the salmon pool in the early june morning following the sounds which seemed very near at first but which faded away like a will-o'-the-wisp when i tried to find them they led me away from the river and out of the big woods to where an unknown baron lay just awake under the sunrise greeting the intruder with the silent questioning look of the wilderness and there close at hand in a little flashlit was Waptonk the Wild, waiting quietly, as if he had always expected me. Still and secret as my approach had been, with that curious unconscious effort to efface himself that marks the going of a man or an animal alone in the great wilderness, Waptonk had been watching me for some moments before I saw him. He was resting quietly in the middle of the flashlit, a splendid big gander, with a soft grey body that almost lost its outline against the grey shore and glossy black neck standing straight up from the water, and a pure white cravat rising on either side to his cheeks, like the immaculate choker of the old-fashioned New England minister. All the wilderness and weariness seemed to have fallen away from him, as a man drops a useless garment when he enters his own home. He looked at me steadily, quietly, without fear, with a certain sense of dignity in every strong, graceful line of his body, and with an unmistakable sense of his responsibility in guarding that which was hidden away somewhere on the farther shore. My first wondering impression was, can this be the same bird that I have followed so long in vain, whose name in the expression a wild goose chase is a symbol for all that is hopeless and inapproachable? There he sat, quiet, self-contained, without a tremor of fear or curiosity, and with no intention, so far as my eyes could discover, either to approach or to fly away. I drew near quietly and sat down on the shore, while Waptonk swung easily back and forth, on a short beat in front of me. As the minutes passed, I made no hostile sound or movement. The short patrol increased its swing till it covered an irregular half-circle, whose centre was a point on the farther shore, and I knew then where I should find his nest and grey mate. Presently he began to talk, a curious low gabble. Out of the grass and moss on the point rose a head and long dark neck, to look at me steadily. Near were low cheepings and whistlings, where the goslings had been hiding in silence till the danger passed by. I rose at this, having found his secret, and made my way round the pond, with immense caution, because of the quaking bogs and bottomless black mud that lurked under my feet at every step. Waptonk stopped his patrol to watch me a moment, then followed closely, keeping just abreast of me, as I made my slow way along the treacherous shore. When I doubled the end of the little pond, and drew near to where his nestlings were hidden, Waptonk turned to the shore, and hurried to his mate ahead of me. A moment he stood over her reassuringly, bending to intertwine his neck with hers, and to rub his cheek softly over her wings, with a gesture that could only mean a caress. His head bent lower still, to touch for an instant, the goslings that were hidden in the moss. Then he left them abruptly, and rushed to where I was standing watching the amazing scene, and drew up defiantly, squarely across my path. An involuntary thrill of admiration ran over me as I looked down at him, standing there so strong and confident, ready to defend his own. "'You splendid fellow, you brave knight, if ever there was one among the feathered folk,' I kept saying to myself. But I wanted to test him farther, and especially I wanted to see all that was hidden in the grey moss. So I started forward again, cautiously. At the first step a lightning transformation swept over Waptonk. Big as he was, he ruffled all his feathers, and half spread his great wings till he looked twice his own size, 
and formidable enough to scare any prowler. Another step, then his eyes flashed, and lowering his head and black neck close to the ground, he rushed straight at me, hissing like forty snakes, and with a gasping, terrifying cackle in his throat, as if his rage were choking him. It was magnificent, this swift change from quiet dignity to raging defiance of an enemy ten times his size. The fierce hissing got into my nerves, spite myself, and made me wonder if any wild animals, living constantly, as animals do, on the thin edge of flight and panic, could stand up against the terrifying sound for a moment. I remembered the time when, as a little boy, I had been soundly drubbed and beaten out of the barnyard by an irate old gander, and watched now the great wings with a lively memory of what blows they could deal. Like a man caught in a fault, I had absolutely no defence, for Waptonk was on his own ground, and I had no business whatever in meddling with his affairs. To throw myself upon him, therefore, and by brute force to overcome the noble fellow defending his little ones, was out of the question, as plainly impossible as to rob a bird's nest or to beat a child. But suppose Noel, my big Indian, should chance that way on his perpetual quest for new beaver ground. I could see the queer squint in his eye and the grin on his wrinkled face as he watched me hopping over the bogs with the old gander nipping at my heels and spanking me with the broad wings as he chased me gloriously out of his bellowick. That was too much even for the sake of encouraging Waptonk as he deserved. So instead of running away, I sank down quietly in the moss, waiting half-humorously to take my medicine and fully expecting to get it good and plenty. Quite near me he stopped, his head down close to the ground, his tongue bent up like a spring in the roof of his mouth, hissing vigorously and watching me keenly out of his bright eyes to see the effect of his demonstration. It flashed upon me instantly why he bristled his feathers and raised his wings while he carried his neck and head down close to the ground like a big snake. The wings, his only weapons, were half raised for a blow, but the fierce hissing, yet harmless head, would surely hold the attention of any attacking animal, just as an owl snaps its beak to frighten you and keep your eyes away from his dangerous claws until he gets them into you unexpectedly. Any wild animal, if you are brave enough to attack, would naturally avoid the snake-like hissing and leap over it for the larger body, only to be met by a stinging blow in the face from the powerful wings. If the delicate neck were carried high, any animal would naturally leap for it, and Waptonk's fight would be over almost before he could strike a blow. As it is, Waptonk carries his most vulnerable point as close to the ground as possible, as a ship carries her magazine below the waterline, and by scaring an animal with his snake-like hiss, he gets a fair chance to use his weapons, and so takes care of himself splendidly against all prowlers. End of section 2